The following program is part of the National Committee on U.S.-China Relations China podcast series. For more information on the National Committee, visit us at www.ncuscr.org or connect with us on Twitter, Facebook, or Weibo. Good afternoon. This is Steve Orleans, president of the National Committee on U.S.-China Relations, and I'm with an old friend today, Sharu Shirley Lin, who has just written a wonderful new book called Taiwan's China Dilemma, Contested Identities and Multiple Interest in Taiwan's Cross-Strait Economic Policy. And it, it focuses on kind of the relationship between Taiwan's economic policy and kind of its increasingly important national identity. But let me start with actually a question about your own background, because I've known you for Yes. More than 20 years. I knew you as a banker. Yes. <laughs> How did you come to write a book like this? Well, uh, Steve, um, thank you. Uh, since you know me so well, uh, I was surprised myself. But throughout those years of working on Wall Street uh, and doing mainly investments in China, uh, it was very much of a puzzle to me why, um, as important as China was and, it was, and the importance of China. Uh, to Taiwan's economy and um, all other aspects was growing for the last uh, three decades. And as you remember, of course, we started um, there early on um, making investments, uh, but it was not uh, a consistent story of um, economic interdependence leading to more uh, cooperation, uh, not to mention any political spillover. So I think it was uh, surprising. Uh, in addition to that, Taiwan, in fact, changed its economic policy towards China as China became more and more important. And Taiwan oscillated in its uh, orientation toward China, the Chinese economy uh, four to five times, if you will. <coughs> and it was very puzzling to me because as a private market person, to me, it seemed obvious that Taiwan needed to rely on China more and uh, the two economies mm-hmm. are so complementary. So I set out after uh, leaving Goldman Sachs to focus on writing this book. Mm-hmm. So it's really since you left, how many years has this been? Uh, so this is about 10 years. Oh, wow. <laughs> well, it's quite, it's very interesting. I mean, it's an issue that having both studied in Taiwan as a young person and then invested in Taiwan when I was part of Carlisle, it's really an issue that I've also looked a lot at. What policy suggestions do you, you have a part of the book that actually talks about that. Tell the listener what policy suggestions you have based upon your research. I think there's uh, two aspects uh, of this. The bigger question, of course, why is this um, an important issue for the world and for China and for, of course, Taiwanese? Well, since uh, China opened up its economy three decades ago, the part of this, uh, sometimes we call it the trilemma, Washington, Beijing, and Taipei um, uh, uh, trilemma is um, the biggest moving part is Taiwan. And so while Beijing and Washington have been holding their position for some time now, the Taiwanese have, of course, developed a democratic institution and also have continued to increase, actually, economic um, dependence on China. And so while this is happening, Taiwanese identity has developed uh, to be more and more separate from uh, the Chinese identity that Beijing would like to uh, promote. And this is important because, of course, Beijing's aim is still ultimately political reunification. And so this poses a problem for Beijing. 
Uh, I think this is first aspect. And the second aspect for Taiwan, as Taiwan becomes uh, more democratic, the voters, uh, Taiwanese, especially the younger generation, they want to see uh, they want to have more input into cross-strait policy, from economic policy to all other aspects, like immigration. And, uh, and so the dynamic between uh, Beijing and Taiwan uh, is moving further away from each other. And um, in terms of policy suggestions, I think uh, two sides. Um, one is for, uh, for Taiwan side, which is, of course, what my book is focused on. I think the Taiwanese government needs to focus on restructuring its economy. Uh, what my book uh, concludes with after reviewing the four uh, periods of economic policy oscillation by the Taiwanese government toward China is that Taiwan has uh, fallen into a high income trap. And this is a more a bigger issue than whether it is, inter, uh, it is dependent on China or, uh, or not enough. Mm-hmm. And, and I think that uh, like other economies like Japan, Korea, Singapore, and the United States, uh, as a result of this high income trap, younger generation uh, and uh, unskilled workers are feeling uh, that they are left out of sure. the benefits of interdependence. But how much of that is based upon cross-strait relations and how much is based upon kind of globalization and those who are left behind in globalization? I mean, you kind of address some of that, but some of this, there's an anti-globalization feeling in the United States this very day, uh, in the Brexit vote, in other places. So how much of it is really fear of China and how much of it is some people get left behind in globalization? I absolutely agree, Steve. Um, uh, as I started the book by saying, originally I started the book by wanting to focus only on the economic factors. Uh, I thought the puzzle should be easy. It must be that some people are not getting the benefits, so the policy is pressured to oscillate. Restriction sometimes and liberalization at other times. But as I look further into it, it's very complex. I think there are what I call economic factors and non-material um, values, non-material um, uh, concerns, uh, and the value differential is what you will see increasingly between young people in China and young people in Taiwan today. Um, and, and so I think that's an overlay on the, um, uh, the issues that globalization or economic interdependence has brought on Taiwan. And, and I, I think that the value differential is harder to bridge because while inequality or youth unemployment or wage stagnation can be addressed by effective public policy, the value differential that young people in Taiwan are now promoting and advocating is uh, democracy, international respect. And um, this is something that I think, to answer your previous question about policy suggestion, I also talk about uh, what Beijing should consider doing because, of course, it is my hope and the, the hope of writing this book is to see peace across the street. That's the most important thing. How do we have peace? I think uh, in addition to what Taiwan needs to do to self-strengthen and become a more competitive economy that addresses the social issues that interdependence with China has brought on, uh, what's important for Beijing, too, is to realize that giving Taiwan inconsistent economic benefits to certain interest group would not further the cause of uh, bringing the society together to look for a political resolution to the situation across the strait. Does it make sense not? I mean, tying obviously this book was written before the election of Tsai Ing-wen, and uh, you know, we've had a lot of discussion about liberalizing cross-strait services, where it seems that Taiwan would be an enormous winner and the youth 
would get jobs out of that, but there seems to be resistance to that. Is that based upon kind of the Taiwan identity issue? As my book basically uh, covers the in the four episodes, in the early days of democratization, most economic issues were hijacked, like in, I think, America today, are hijacked by the issue of uh, identity, who we are. And a lot of it has to do with one's attitude uh, toward being either uh, Chinese or being Taiwanese. And so economic factors are not being considered seriously. And although the suggestion of liberalizing services has been uh, has been important for quite some time, I think the government was dealing with a very politicized uh, and a, a contested uh, a, na- a nation with contested identities that were competing for uh, political gains. And I think that early on, that was uh, definitely an issue that uh, that brought on a very emotional debate and led to this high correlation between national identity and one's inclination toward uh, more trade with China or less trade with China. But in the later days, as you can see with the Economic Cooperation Framework Agreement, when Mind uh, was able to sign and ratify the EGFA, um, over 70% of the Taiwanese supported it. Because at this time, actually, interestingly, more than 93% of Taiwanese since 2009 until now uh, say that they are either uh, exclusively Taiwanese or both Taiwanese and Chinese. So suddenly the issue of identity um, cannot be in the discussion because everyone was Taiwanese. So instead, politicians had to focus on really how to restructure the economy, liberalize the service uh, sector, and make Taiwan more competitive. And this is a big issue that Taiwan is finally now facing, I think President Tsai has a very big challenge ahead of her uh, because everyone agrees that they are Taiwanese and they want to see Taiwan become more competitive. Um, and this means two things uh, in terms of the attitude toward China, mm-hmm. either um, focus on China more and therefore Taiwan's economy will become more competitive or to reduce um, dependence on China because it would threaten Taiwan's um, security. Well, clearly her going south policy um, is based upon her belief that the identity politics is so strong that they're going to try to diversify their economic reliance from China moving to Southeast Asia. I think it's deeply problematic. I think a, Chi- a Taiwanese in, in Vietnam or in Thailand or in Indonesia uh, has very, doesn't have huge competitive advantage as opposed to in Zhejiang or Fujian or Jiangsu, where it ha- they have enormous competitive advantage. So it's tough to tell a business person, as both right. you and I were, that, well, you got to go to Vietnam or you got to go to Thailand. I kind of go, huh? <laughs> I, I uh, agree, especially because if you look at the Go South policy, if you remember, Li Tenghui started it in 1993. Right. So yep. this is why this is called the new Go South policy. <laughs> um, but failed of course, once. in 1983, <laughs> it failed pretty miserably um, because of the Asian financial crisis right. that hit later on. But I think today the situation may be, um, uh, there's two explanations to this. One is, uh, I'm not really sure this high cabinet is really thinking this will take care of Taiwan's um, interdependence with China. I think this is more to say, actually, um, from the private sector's perspective, many businesses wanted to go to Southeast Asia because China has become more and more expensive. And Taiwan does not have free trade agreements with the Southeast Asian countries. So the government needs to put more focus on helping the private companies go to Southeast Asia. But on the other hand, um, uh, you are right in that this will not solve the, ish- the problem 
of Taiwan becoming more competitive. Because Southeast Asia, the countries that she's targeting in this new policy, uh, I would say the fifth oscillation of economic policy, is merely one-fifth of Taiwan's trade and investment. And therefore, uh, what Taiwan really needs to do if it wants to become uh, a more value-added economy is to work with the U.S. and Japan more and work with China more on higher-end products Mm -hmm. and services um, instead of focusing um, on just moving away. Mm -hmm. How many Taiwanese do you think live in China now and work? Well, there are a lot of different estimates. In my book, I didn't include it because the, 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 the number varies, but I would say a million. About a million, yeah. We used to estimate more. We had a funny way of estimating it, which is, you know, our cable penetration, cable television penetration in Taiwan was very close to 100% um, when you would, you know, because you really, because of the mountains, you couldn't get right. kind of uh, terrestrial. Um, and it was before the phone company could compete. And... We used to have about 10% of the homes that didn't take cable. And when we go and knock on the door, it was because nobody really lived there. They lived on the mainland. That, had been <laughs> our, that was like our conclusion in, 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 in Taoyuan and in Shinju and in all these other places. They actually, so they didn't want cable. You didn't want to be paying a cable bill if right. nobody was ever at home to watch television or they install it for one month and then, and then yes. disconnect it. So I, I thought it was, well, which would suggest roughly, you know, again, we, we really don't need a the north, you know, the northern section of Taiwan, but it would suggest that, you know, maybe one and a half, two million people. But I think you hit a very good point, um, Steve. The bigger issue of uh, all of this, uh, the trade and investment in China, which is now um, over $150 billion, is that it's created a lot of social problems in Taiwan. The men are leaving for work in, in uh, China, and young students um, are, some of them feel that they are um, forced to go look for a job in China mm-hmm. when they want to live actually um, uh, in Taiwan. Uh, and I think that so the social issues are um, uh, must be addressed by the new government. Uh, the last eight years of uh, more trade and investment with China actually has led to a, a particularly uh, interesting situation in that Taiwan's trade surplus with China is now at a 10-year low. So even though tra- what? Uh, trade surplus... Uh, with China is at a 10-year low. So the uh, benefits given to Taiwan is inconsistent. And so um, hoping that these uh, economic benefits will just um, lead to a trickle-down effect has not been effective. And I think Beijing is very frustrated. And similarly, Mahinja was very frustrated. And I think uh, Taiwan has the opportunity to uh, focus on uh, how to reduce inequality in Taiwan. As mm-hmm. you said, exactly. The the effect of globalization on these high-income countries um, is uh, is a very much front and center issue. Uh, but of course, as I said before, the underlying problem of identity can only be resolved if Beijing were to propose a more inclusive identity that allows people to be both Chinese and Taiwanese, for mm-hmm. example. And I think this issue is uh, something that I'm looking at now more and more uh, in terms of Hong Kong. Mm-hmm. You mentioned immigration as a problem. Chinese immigration to Taiwan is a problem? It is a perception uh, rather oh, so than a reality. perception, because I, I noticed on page 220, <laughs> when I, I said, really? Wow, that one I hadn't missed. Well, there, there are. There are nearly 200,000 um, in my book. I wrote 167,000 because that, that was the census at that point. Uh, Mostly Chinese women. Chinese spouse, right. yes. But, the, of course, that has declined over the years. And uh, now one out of three babies in Taiwan are born to immigrant mothers, but they're mostly from Southeast Asia because uh, 
uh, Taiwanese men are no longer able to go to China and just find a bride. Mm-hmm. Um, and so Shortage this is, of women in China. And, right. and there's not enough women in China. And in addition, um, uh, the women in Taiwan don't want to have babies. It's, it's, uh, in 2011, it was one of the lowest, it was number one low fertility country in the world. Mm. I've been with Shirley Lin, who has just written this book, Taiwan's China Dilemma. And if you want to know what's going on between Taiwan and China and understand what in Taiwan is driving that, read the book. Shirley, thank you so much. Thank you, Steve.